Welcome to Whores Talk Horror. We're not really whores. We just like wordplay. Hello and welcome to Horrors Talk Horror. I'm Sharon. And I'm Melinda. Today we're going to be talking about outdated forms of mental health treatments. Now I'm not the biggest expert on this topic. I have seen a therapist and psychiatrists for things like anxiety and depression, but I have had none of the treatments we're about to talk about uh, used on me. Just want to get that out there. Though I did say I've seen psychiatrists plural because just like any doctor, sometimes you have to find the right fit. Just like a friend of mine used to say that psychiatrists are like boyfriends. Sometimes one looks promising and then it doesn't work out. Uh, But when you find the right one, you'll know. Now, as far as modern psychiatry goes, I think it's best to keep an open mind and advocate for yourself. Don't be afraid to say no. That said, what we're about to discuss is a tad different because remember, perspective is everything. We're going to be talking about treatments that started as far back as the Stone Age, literally. Uh, Psychiatry is still a bit of a mystery to a degree today, but the knowledge available in, say, like the 40s was light years from the knowledge we have today, which still has so many unanswered questions. Having said all of that, sit back, relax, Pop a Xanax if you got one, and listen to what human beings used to do to each other, all in the name of science. Yay! All right. So before we get into some of the past treatments that were used that range anywhere from the bizarre to just plain brutality, uh, we think it's important to cover the history of mental health treatments and how it has evolved throughout the years. The history of psychiatric therapies can be traced all the way back to the ancient Greeks and Egyptians and contain perhaps more so than in any other field of medicine, an array of unusual treatments that today would send ripples throughout even the most tolerant medical licensing boards. A few make a degree of scientific sense, uh, some were genuine breakthroughs, but most treatments were complete disasters. Ancient theories regarding the causes of mental illness were often the result of supernatural beliefs that demonic possession, curses, sorcery, or a vengeful god were behind the strange symptoms that a person may have exhibited. Remedies, therefore, ran the gamut from the mystical to the barbaric. When violence wasn't used, priest doctors, like those in ancient Mesopotamia, Um, would use rituals based on religion and superstition since they believed that demonic possession was the reason behind mental disturbances. Such rituals would include prayer, atonement, exorcisms, incantations, and other forms of tribalistic expressions of spirituality. However, shamans would also resort to threats, bribery, and even punishment if the ritualistic methods proved unsuccessful in changing the behavior of a tribe member. It was the ancient Egyptians who had the most progressive ideas, of their time anyway, in how they treated the people among them who had mental health concerns. The medicine men of the Nile recommended that patients engage in recreational activities such as music, dancing, or painting to relieve their symptoms and work towards some semblance of normalcy, uncannily similar to some of the avenues of treatment offered in contemporary treatment facilities, which sounds a lot like art therapy that's used today. 
Yeah, the Egyptians kind of had it going on a little bit. Early European philosophers also nudged these ideas of mental illness forward. Somewhere between the 5th and 3rd centuries BCE, the Greek physician Hippocrates rejected the idea that mental instability was the result of supernatural wrath and wrote that imbalances in thinking and behavior were from, quote, natural occurrences in the body, in particular, the brain. Hippocrates and two other prominent Greek thinkers, Galen and Socrates, each developed the idea of there being four essential elements to the body called humors, which consisted of blood, bile, black bile, and phlegm. The unique characteristics and personalities of human beings could be attributed to the idiosyncratic balances of these so-called humors. Basically, when the humors were out of balance, mental illness was the result. kind of like that. I think that, no. <laughs> I think that's very odd. You have too much phlegm. That's why you're depressed. <laughs> uh, typically, a patient's family was responsible for the custody and care of the patient. While interventions and facilities for residential treatment were rare, it wasn't until 792 CE in Baghdad that the first mental hospital was founded. That's You never would have thought. I wouldn't have thought. Um, it's very progressive. Uh, in Europe, however, family having custody of mentally ill patients was for a long time seen as a source of shame and humiliation. Many families resorted to hiding their loved ones in, you know, the cellar, sometimes caging them, delegating them to servants' care, or simply abandoning them, leaving their mentally unhealthy flesh and blood on the streets as beggars. Gross. Regrettably, the social stigma attached to mental health problems is still prevalent in countries and culture that place a strong emphasis on family honor. For that reason, mentally unhealthy family members were and still are brutally and mercilessly ostracized. It was not unheard of for some families to turn their loved ones into the police for fear that the mental health disorder could be considered dangerous or too difficult to manage at home. Life imprisonment was not out of the question. During the Middle Ages in Europe, mentally ill people were sometimes subject to physical punishment, such as beatings, and sometimes in an attempt to literally beat the illness out of them. It wasn't until 1792 in Paris, where one of the most important reforms in the treatment of mental health took place. French physician Philippe Penel, who is called the founder of moral treatment, developed a mental health reform that became the cornerstone of mental health care in the 1800s. Pinnell developed a hypothesis that mentally unhealthy patients needed care and kindness, who would have thought, right? <laughs> in order for their conditions to improve. To that effect, he took ownership of the famous Hospice de Bessette, located in the southern suburbs of Paris. He ordered that the facility be cleaned, patients be unchained and put in rooms with sunlight, allowed to exercise freely within hospital grounds, and that their quality of care be improved. I mean, who would have thought Groundbreaking here. Right? <laughs> who would have thought treat people like people? <laughs> the radical nature of moral treatment made waves on the other side of the Atlantic Ocean. When the moral method reached the shores of the United States, doctors understood it to be a comprehensive way of treating mentally ill people by working on their social, individual, and occupational needs. 
This was the first time that the idea of rehabilitating mentally ill people back to recovery and eventual reintegration with their families and communities at large was floated. Great. <laughs> Doctors would encourage their patients to participate in manual labor and intellectual conversation, effectively training them to be healthy and contributing members of society again. Moral treatment was highly effective, especially compared to the systems it succeeded. But don't get too excited yet. <laughs> because it quickly died out in the waning years of the 19th century. Fuck. Critics argued that the method did not really treat patients, but made them dependent on their doctors and the asylum staff for comfort. In the 20th century, historians and contemporary doctors argued that the moral method simply substituted one form of control for another. I guess the doctors couldn't be bothered to like spend too much time with their patients or like care about them. So they're like, no, it's easier just to like drill a hole in their head or shock them or... Well, I Throw was, them in a, a cage. Because <laughs> that always works. I was going to say that it, it does feel like they were teaching them to mask their symptoms, but at least they were in a nice place. And the like the recognition that they do need, like, sun. everybody needs sunlight and exercise and whatever. Like, that will do anyone's mental health good. Yeah. Which um, I don't think is, like, masking them. I think that's more... No, not that. But in the States, they were kind of teaching them how to you know, participate in conversations and like, which that I felt like was teaching them how to like mask their behavior a little bit, but I, I, we'll keep going. It's better than other situations. <laughs> it's better than some of the treatments we'll be getting into in a little bit. In spite of the end of the moral treatment movement, the conversation about mental health treatment was ready to take a big step forward. A major figure in that progression was Mr. Sigmund Freud. The famous Austrian neurologist and psychiatrist that developed the theory of psychoanalysis, which gave rise to the practice of, quote, talking cures and free association, encouraging patients to talk about whatever came to mind. Freud's theory was that the avenues of conversation would open a door to the patient's unconscious mind, granting access to any kind of repressed thoughts and feelings that might have compelled the mental instability. Psychoanalysis proved influential enough that even today, around 25% of practicing therapists use methods developed by Sigmund Freud. The attention Freud's work received opened other doors of mental health treatment, such as psychosurgery, electroconvulsive therapy, and psychopharmacology. But there is still a lot of work to be done before we reach the treatments of today, which are still far from perfect. Let's just be clear about that, mm -hmm. um, especially in many parts of the world. Um, but now that we understand where we started, let's move on to some of the treatments that we should all be grateful uh, that are pretty much no longer part of mental health treatment today. Uh, there are some exceptions that we will discuss. The first treatment we're going to be talking about is trephination, or in layman's terms, holes in your head, or in Cypress Hill terms, you get a hole in your head, in your motherfucking head, a hole in the head, a hole in the head. <laughs> I'm sorry, I couldn't resist. Every time I was reading about trepanation and it said a hole in the head, I thought of that song and I love that album, so I had to throw that joke in there. And we can joke about that because this treatment literally began in the Stone Age, so no one can be like, too soon! 
<laughs> Although I might ask you to reprise that later on in this episode, but <laughs> anyways. <laughs> um Although neurosurgeons still use trephination to this day, primarily for the treatment of epidural and subdural hematomas and for surgical access to help relieve intracranial pressure, they do not use it anymore to treat mental illness, as far as I know. I mean, right. maybe in some parts of the world, but I, I think this practice um, is pretty much off the shelf. <laughs> At least legally, yeah. yeah. In the U.S., yeah. Exactly. Um, it is the oldest known neurosurgical procedure. Trephination, also called trepanation or trepaning, involved opening a hole in the skull using an auger, bore, or even a saw, thereby exposing the intracranial contents. The dura mater, which is the toughest outermost membrane enveloping the brain and spinal cord, is exposed, but there's no damage to the underlying blood vessels, meninges, or brain. Evidence for trephination occurred from prehistoric times from the Neolithic period around 12,000 years ago onward, and it was used in nearly every corner of the world. The main pieces of archaeological evidence are in the forms of cave paintings and human remains, the skulls themselves. Many skulls show signs of healing and indicate that the patient lived for years after the event, and even sometimes having trephination performed again later in life and again surviving the experience. 1,200 years ago. 12,000. 12,000. 12, That's insane to me that they would live. Because like today we have like things to better heal the wounds or whatever. And oh my God, I'm sorry. My jaw is just like on the floor. <laughs> I mean, your your body heals itself. It's an amazing machine that regenerates. And I'm sure there was a lot of casualties before those skulls that they found that showed signs of healing that proved that patients lived. Uh, I'm sure <laughs> there's a lot of people who did not survive. Um, and then... You know, as with every type of uh, advancement in science, you you have to start somewhere and you learn from your mistakes. And unfortunately, not everyone's going to make it. But that's it's, it's amazing how science works. Yeah. The primary theories for the practice of trepanation in ancient times include spiritual purposes, treatment for epilepsy, headaches, head wounds, and mental disorders. In ancient times, holes were drilled into a person who was behaving in what was considered an abnormal way to let out what people believed were evil spirits. The bone that was trepane was kept by prehistoric people and may have been worn as a charm to keep evil spirits away. I also believe that this is the traditional gift for the 15th wedding anniversary. <laughs> uh, I think five years would... 10 is tin, and 15 years is skull fragments made into jewelry. Uh, thank God Spencer and I have about six more years to go before that because I am not looking forward to that anniversary. Um, evidence also suggests that trepanation was used as primitive emergency surgery after head wounds to remove shattered bits of bone from a fractured skull and clean out the blood that often pools under the skull after a blow to the head from hunting accidents, falls, wild animals, and weapons such as clubs and spears. Uh, 
<laughs> Luckily, we don't have to worry too much about those types of injuries anymore. Speak uh, for yourself. Maybe the random hunting accident and falls. Wild animals and clubs and spears, not so much. Yeah, or Dick Cheney's friends. Dick Cheney shooting you in the face, you know. Obviously, with such a risky procedure, there can be severe repercussions as the operation leaves very little space for air uh, if the dura matter is penetrated. So yeah, if the dura matter is penetrated, that is going to lead to complications, which could include infection, blood loss, hemorrhages, uh, permanent brain damage, and obviously a high risk of death. Additionally, there is high risk for infection if the operation is conducted with contaminated tools or improper sanitary wound care. If the infection is not caught and treated immediately, it can be fatal or lead to significant and permanent brain damage. So basically, even if you survive actually having your skull drilled into, you could still die from post-op complications or infection. Ugh. So yeah, luckily now this is mainly used in a sterile surgical environment <laughs> to treat specific conditions. And we do not use this for mentally ill people anymore. This method. At least in the U.S. <laughs> Hopefully. Legally. <laughs> Except for maybe like Dr. Satan. Or in a back alley somewhere, which yeah. we don't recommend getting your psychiatric treatment from a back alley. <laughs> All right, Mindy. Well, we're going to go a little less invasive. Um, we're going to talk next about laudanum. Uh, before the days of Advil, antidepressants, or even Tylenol PM, there was laudanum. What was it? Laudanum is opium tincture or an extract of plant or animal material dissolved in ethanol made of air-dried poppy latex and containing alkaloids such as morphine and codeine. That's quite a mix. Uh, historically, it was used to treat everything from cr a cranky baby who's teething, to treating headaches, coughs, gout, rheumatism, diarrhea, depression, and naturally, women's troubles. Uh, from the article titled The Lure of Laudanum, the Victorian's Favorite Drug by Claire Cock Starkey. Quote, it could be easily purchased from pubs, grocers, barbershops, tobacconists, pharmacies, and even confectioners. The drug was often cheaper than alcohol, making it affordable to all levels of society, unquote. While the drug is still used today, it's only available with a prescription, and its uses are much more limited, prescribed mostly to treat pain, alleviate diarrhea, believe it or not, and surprisingly, easing the withdrawal symptoms in infants born to mothers addicted to heroin or opioids, which, yeah. But Victorian society loved this shit, and it was especially popular with the arts crowd. Bram Stoker, Charles Dickens, Piercy Shelley, and Lord Byron were all laudanum users, and that's just to name a few. While some folks were able to use the drug safely for short periods of time to treat illness, dependence and addiction was the norm for most users. If you've seen the show Deadwood, laudanum is the, quote, medicine that Molly Parker's character, Alma Garrett, regularly takes in season one, for example. For many, laudanum addiction was fatal, but withdrawal, as we also saw in Deadwood, was bitch. The sense of euphoria laudanum produced was immediately followed with hardcore crashing lows, emotionally and physically. 
Then, in 1889, the Journal of Mental Sciences published Confessions of a Young Lady Laudanum Drinker, an anonymous letter from a young laudanum-addicted girl who describes some of her withdrawal symptoms, namely an awful weariness and numbness at the end of her back, extreme irritability, intense restlessness along with insomnia, and suicidal thoughts, and stated that, quote, if the house had been burning, would have thought it too much of an effort to rise, unquote. This kicked off regulation process. At least in the U.S., restrictions on manufacture and distribution of the drug began in 1914. By the mid-20th century, the pharmaceutical industry began synthesizing opioids, such as oxycodone, codeine, and morphine, which became preferable to laudanum since a single opioid could be prescribed for different types of pain rather than the cocktail, quote, unquote, of laudanum. So that was a party. Laudanum was like a party. And now they're kind of breaking the party into separate parties. <laughs> laudanum officially became regulated as a Schedule II drug in 1970 with the Uniform Controlled Substance Act, which placed tight control around the drug. Laudanum is rarely, if ever, prescribed today, aside from Deadwood, which, again, was a TV show. I actually don't know anyone who's ever taken laudanum, I don't think. As someone who suffered from neck and upper back muscle pains since forever, I remember a doctor once telling me how they used to inject morphine directly into tight muscles or knots, forcing the muscles to relax. I've always thought that that sounded incredible, though that's not really done these days either, which, damn it, shoot me up with some morphine in my muscles. I mean, not otherwise. But honestly, that's the only way I could see wanting to take or use laudanum. Anything that's that physically addictive, I'd rather shy away from using, though, because for obvious reasons, honestly, uh, you Deadwood fans know what I'm talking about. They do a great job of showing the detox process. And yeah, no thank you. But again, back in the day, things were thought of differently. And now Sharon's going to tell us about hysteria therapy. Well, uh, hysteria therapy. <laughs> oh, man, this opens up like a whole can of worms with the way women were treated back. Open that the, can, Sharon. In the day. Um, and God, is are things that much different now? Uh, slightly. Slightly. But yeah, we'll get into it. <laughs> Open it, Sharon. Open that can. So, despite his title as the father of Western medicine, in hindsight, Hippocrates' theory on mental illness in women inspired many centuries of medical misogyny. The ancient Greek healer attributed female psychiatric symptoms to hysteria or the wandering of the womb throughout the body. It was believed that a uterus could migrate around the female body, placing pressure on organs and causing any number of ill effects. I actually think my uterus is in my head right now because I have a slight <laughs> headache. <laughs> and I don't know how scientists and doctors like believed this, but okay. To be fair, we did have somebody in Congress just a few years ago who thought that if a woman get preg got pregnant by rape, her body could just quote shut that down. So that, like I said, I mean, have have our thoughts changed that much since you know ancient Greek times <laughs> <laughs> and beyond? Um, 
So one cure was hysterical suffocation in which the offending uterus was usually coaxed back into place by placing good smells near the vagina and bad smells near the mouth and nose. Spencer, can you fart in my face really quickly so that my uterus goes back into my pelvis so my headache goes away? (laughs) Or just put like some fresh baked cookies near my vagina? (laughs) Maybe Gwyneth Paltrow had it right this whole fucking time. (laughs) Why? Did she? The whole steaming your vagina thing on goop? Oh, I don't even. I'm joking. I don't pay attention. Nobody steam your vagina. It's not a good (laughs) sanitary I mean, did she steam it with like some essential oils? I don't remember. So that her uterus stayed where it stayed put? I'm going to go with yes, (laughs) because it'll make me feel better personally. Bad uterus, bad uterus. So Plato proposed a cure that if patients, you know, simply got married and became pregnant because of gestation, that would ensure proper positioning of the uterus. (sighs) In other words, put that uterus right in its place, barefoot in the kitchen. Yeah. Pregnant. (laughs) Like a woman's supposed to be. Obviously, we are joking. It's just, you kind of have to laugh at this. Otherwise, Minnie and I would probably just start beating Spencer with our hands, our clenched fists, because we want to take out all of our uh, rage towards men throughout history on this poor, unsuspecting. (laughs) All right, I'll see you later. Bye. Spencer's out. <laughs> All right. Let's get on to the Christians because yeah. they, they know how to treat women better. I bet they do. Um, actually, there's not too, too much about the Christians, but the Christians, the Christian era saw a new prime suspect for hysterical symptoms. It wasn't so much a wandering uterus. What do you think it is? Demonic possession. <laughs> of course. It was Jean-Martin Charcot in 1880, France, who first took a modern scientific sense to the female-only disease of hysteria. He lectured to his medical students, showing them photos and live subjects on the hysteria symptoms he believed were caused by an unknown internal injury affecting the nervous system. One of these medical students was none other than Sigmund Freud. Freud, working with his partner Brewer in Austria, developed Charcot's theories further and wrote several studies on female hysteria in which he theorized that hysteria was a result not of a physical injury to the body, but of a psychological scar produced through trauma or repression. Specifically, the psychological damage was a result of removing male sexuality from females, an idea that stems from Freud's famous Oedipal moment of recognition in which a young female realizes she has no penis and has been castrated. So in essence, Freud believed that women experienced hysteria because they were unable to reconcile the loss of their metaphoric penis. Oh, Freud. (laughs) You and your crazy sex logic. What happened? (laughs) It's gone. (laughs) What happened? (laughs) Where's your penis? (laughs) I, I, I will say the only part of that that rings like any truth is when I was younger, I was a little bit jealous of the way Boys could pee standing up and we had to sit down. And I remember my mom was drawing me a bath one night and I was probably like six years old. And I told her that if boys can pee standing up, so could I. 
And she's like, no, you can't. And I was like, yes, I can. Watch. (laughs) And so I stood in front of the toilet, just like, you know, I've seen like my brother do. And I peed. And guess what happened? (laughs) It went all over the fucking floor. (laughs) And then then she had to clean the floor and then clean me. (laughs) But you know what? That that was like my young feminist self being like, yeah, I can fucking do this. I got this. I'm not going to lie. I kind of did the same thing when I was like three or four. But I do remember that I recognized to stand over the toilet. It still did not work out all that great. (laughs) But I was also very pissed that guys didn't have to sit down. Yeah, I just kind of like tilted my pelvis forward a little bit, thinking that somehow like the stream would like arc. (laughs) It does in cartoons. I don't know why it does not in real life. Oh, man. This conversation reminds me of that scene in that movie Freaky. With Vince Vaughn, yes. where he's peeing in the oh, urinal, but he's I the woman. That was totally great. Totally thought the same thing. Penises are weird. They're kind of fun. <laughs> that was one of my favorite scenes. <laughs> they are weird, but I, I can see how they would be kind of fun. I would want one for like a day, and then I think I'd be like, get this thing off me. Like in the movie Freaky. <laughs> All right. Uh, so with this in mind, Freud described hysteria hysteria. Uh, with this in mind, Freud described hysteria as quote, characteristically feminine, end quote, and recommended basically what every other man treating hysteria <laughs> through the years recommended. Get married, have sex, get pregnant. You know, that, that'll solve all your problems. If marriage wasn't an acceptable or possible treatment, however, there was another technique of treatment used for hysteria, uterine massage. That's right. AKA paddling the pink canoe. Oh yeah. <laughs> um ugh, men. Anyways, around 1910 advancements in medical knowledge and feminist movements, woo-woo, <laughs> go feminism, led to the understandings that the uterus is not at the heart of most medical problems and that many of the symptoms previously attributed to hysteria truly belong to mental illnesses or were just you know, normal behaviors for females. Also, hysteria was basically the medical explanation for everything that men found mysterious or unmanageable in women. And it's also worth noting that many of the problems that physicians were attempting to fix in female patients were not problems when they were presented in male patients. So gendered stereotypes like the ideas that women should be submissive, even-tempered, and sexually inhibited have caused tremendous damage throughout history and continue to do so today. It doesn't seem so coincidental that most modern treatments for hysteria involved regular marital sex, marriage, or pregnancy and childbirth, all, quote, proper activities for a proper woman, end quote, rant or... (laughs) Maybe they should have thought that, I mean, could women be having all these issues because of the shit that men are putting them through to cure them of illnesses they don't have or that are misdiagnosed? Or just because of men in general, not letting them work or vote or... (laughs) I'm just going to say right now that I would be fucked if I was alive during like any of the periods we cover today, like I would just be fucked. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we'd be burned as witches. Yeah, I was gonna say, I don't think it would matter. We'd both be witches. Which would actually be fucking awesome. 
I mean, not the burning part, but like <laughs> being like quote unquote witches. Um, <laughs> well, we could always come back and haunt the men that wronged us if oh, they I, did burn us. I mean, I'm still planning on doing that in this. I know. <laughs> after this life. Yes, I'm aware. Anyway. All right, Mindy, back to uh, surgical treatments (laughs) for mental health. Uh, You're going to be talking about lobotomies. I am. Oh, boy. Okay. Wikipedia says lobotomy or leucotomy is a form of psychosurgery, a neurosurgical treatment of a mental disorder that involves severing connections in the brain's prefrontal cortex. Let me rephrase that. They sever, a.k.a. cut, connections to and from the front outermost part of your brain, like from the rest of your brain, in layman's terms, that is. This is a messed up section, I thought anyway. But this is the part of the brain that like handles things like planning, focus, impulse control, conscious decision making, and personality development, just to name a few. So we'll just cut it off. That's fine from the rest of the brain. The prefrontal cortex receives input from multiple regions of the brain to process information and adapts accordingly. While the prefrontal cortex does not house a person's entire self, it does contribute to the complex attitudes and choices that form a personality. So it's important is all I'm saying. Um, (laughs) lobotomies were used to, quote, treat various mental disorders. Again, everything from depression, nervous tensions, delusions, obsessive behavior, violent behavior, seizures, the list goes on and on. Fun fact, lobotomies reached peak popularity in the U.S. in around the 1940s and then into the early 1950s. And this is gonna surprise you. But would you believe the majority of lobotomy patients were women? I know, right? It's true. (laughs) Uh, Quote, a 1951 study of American hospitals found that nearly 60% of lobotomy patients were women. And that was just in 1951 alone. Yes, ma'am? But in the women patients, they were removing the uterus from the brain. (laughs) (laughs) You don't understand it. It traveled. It traveled. We have to put it back in your pelvis. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, For reasons we'll get into, the procedure is no longer practiced, Uh, but if you're unfamiliar, a lobotomy is basically poking at your brain with a sharp, pointy stick. Scientists have been actually poking at brains with sticks for longer than you'd think, but they mostly only poked at folks already deemed insane, so like, that's cool. You yeah. got you got the brain stick poker. Right. You got that ready? I need that I need that brain stick. And they're poker. deemed insane, so we can poke at their brains. It's cool. <laughs> That's a fun internet rabbit hole to fall down if you're interested in more detail, but for today's purposes, we're gonna condense a bit. Uh, the rise in popularity of the lobotomy is largely attributed to the work of Portuguese neurologist Igas Moniz in 1935. He believed that patients with obsessive behavior were suffering from fixed circuits in the brain. In a Lisbon hospital in 1935, Moniz had his aha moment as he wrote in a monograph titled How I Came to Perform Frontal Leucotomy. That's a real page turner, by the way. It is, right? (laughs) Sounds like it. Quote, I decided to sever the connecting fibers of the neurons in activity. Unquote. Yeah, it's that easy. Um, 
Moniz's technique involved drilling a pair of holes. Here we go. Back to the head drilling. Drilling a a pair of holes into the patient's skull, either on the sides or on the top, then pushing a sharp instrument called a leucotome or sharp pointy stick into the brain. Once inserted, the surgeon would basically stir the pot, sweeping the leucotome from side to side, cutting the connections between the frontal lobes and the rest of the brain. So like literally just sticking it in there and like shoving it around. I'm thinking of that scene in Hannibal where Hannibal Lecter cuts Ray Liotta's oh, right. head off and takes it off. And he's just kind of like cutting little pieces of his brain off and that like blo- I cooking them up. I love that. I'm kind of like picturing a, a similar situation. With right. Ugh. I know. Word of Moniz's work spread. And in 1949, Moniz shared the Nobel Prize for Physiology for Medicine for the, quote, discovery of the therapeutic value of lacotomy in certain psychoses, unquote. Walter Rudolph Hess was the joint winner with Moniz and won for his work on the function of the midbrain, but had no involvement with anything Moniz was doing, <laughs> lobotomies, whatever. Lobotomies caught on worldwide, largely in the UK, but American neurologist Walter Freeman was a super fan. Like he had a t-shirt that said, lobotomists do it better or something like what's a super fan of lobotomy i'm about to tell you but he probably did i'm not gonna lie um in 1935 freeman recruited neurosurgeon and colleague james watts to join his lobotomy fan club so on the back it said lobotomy fan club and in the front it said lobotomists do it better (laughs) um his fan club that was really his actual medical practice at Church Washington University. (laughs) They became, uh, Watts and uh, Freeman became evangelists for the procedure of a lobotomy and actually performed the first lobotomy in the United States. USA! USA! Don't say that too loud. I don't want people to think we're cheering for something else (laughs) up here. So I'm going to read an excerpt from an article published by the Journal of uh, Neurosurgery titled Psychosurgery Ethics and Media, A History of Walter Freeman and the Lobotomy by James P. Caruso and Jason P. Sheehan. Another page turner. (laughs) I mean, I blew through. I have it on Kindle, so it's real easy to get through it. Um, If you're squeamish or sensitive to stories about mentally ill folks being taken advantage of, here's your trigger warning. On September 4th, 1936, physician and scientist Walter Freeman and neurosurgeon James Watts performed the first lobotomy in the U.S. on Alice Hood Hammett, a woman diagnosed with agitated depression. This part totally fucked with me. Hammett attempted to withdraw her consent the night before the operation due to concerns about her head being shaved prior to the operation. So Freeman told her that he would not shave her head. But on the day of the operation, she continued to resist and she struggled while she underwent sedation and general anesthesia, which is fucked up. Freeman and Watts, quote, used a modified version of Moniz's leucotome their version had a cylindrical metal insert to remove cores of white matter tracks between the prefrontal cortex and the thalamus. A wire loop protruded from the bottom end of the instrument, and when Freeman and Watts rotated it, the loop 
excised a circular section of white matter going anywhere from two to four inches deep and at various angles. Jesus. Of the fucking brain. Yeah, I know. The process was performed bilaterally. They lacerated a single vessel during the final core excision, but the patient's vital signs did not demonstrate distress. So basically, like, they were like, oops, cut that one. Oh, she's still good. Let's keep going. Once finished, the wounds were dressed and wrapped. The whole procedure was finished after approximately one hour. Quick, fast, like going to the drive-thru. When Alice Hammond awoke, she stated that she was happy and that she did not mind that Freeman had shaved her head. Six days after the operation, Hammond experienced transient language difficulties, disorientation, and agitation. But she returned home, and Freeman considered the outcome a success. Two months after Alice Hammett's surgery, Freeman began describing the procedure as a lobotomy rather than a leucotomy. The new terminology emphasized that the surgery was localized to the frontal lobes and involved the disruption of gray and white matter, unquote. However, Walter Freeman was like, drilling holes in heads seems fun, but it's messy and not to mention expensive. And then there's that whole like only surgeons can perform surgery in a hospital rule. Because, yeah, Freeman was itching to do some digging around in brains, but he wasn't a surgeon, and hospitals tend to frown on non-surgeons performing surgery. Besides, that's what James Watts was for. Freeman thought to himself, if only there was a way to simplify the process so even psychiatrists could perform the procedure in psychiatric hospitals and no drilling would be involved. Freeman had an idea. In 1945, shit you not, Freeman literally took an ice pick from his own kitchen and began testing his idea on grapefruit and then cadavers. And thus, the transorbital lobotomy was born. Inspired by the work of an Italian psychiatrist, Freeman's version involved lifting the upper eyelid and placing the point of an orbitoclast or a slender rod shaped like an ice pick Beneath the eyelid, against the top of the eye socket, a mallet was then used to tap through the orbital roof. And I'm sorry, I have a hard time even reading that. Oh, my God. Yeah. Unfortunately, James Watts wasn't down with the new method, a conflict that eventually ended their, their partnership. Again, from the Journal of Neurosurgery, quote, Watts resisted the technique itself Freeman's lack of sterile technique when performing it and the idea of performing the procedure in an outpatient setting. So he was just like, yeah, there are so many things wrong with this, which he was not wrong. The final straw for Watts was the treatment of Freeman's 10th transorbital lobotomy patient. According to Freeman, Watts observed the procedure, voiced his disapproval, and then threatened to leave the practice if Freeman did not stop performing transorbital lobotomies. However, Watts claims he'd asked Freeman not to perform the procedure in their shared outpatient offices. So, like, you can do it, just don't do it where we live. Don't shit where you eat, you know? Despite this request, one day Watts walked in on Freeman standing over an unconscious patient who had an ice pick lodged in his eye socket. And Freeman was like, oh, it's it's not what it looks like. Uh, He had an eyelash. (laughs) I'm just helping him get an eyelash out of his eye. Nothing. It's it's cool, man. (laughs) Nothing. Nothing to see here. Freeman asked Watts to even 
assist him while he took a fucking photograph. He wanted a selfie with his patient. It's not a selfie if someone else takes it. I guess that's true. Still, it's (laughs) fucked up. Watts refused, saying that he would actively campaign against transorbital lobotomies performed at George Washington University specifically. When Freeman broached the idea of teaching psychiatrists to perform transorbital lobotomies, Watts adamantly objected. Freeman began working with a new neurosurgical partner, and their clinical partnership was effectively over. So basically he was like, would you do it if we taught psychiatrists? (laughs) No. Uh, A part of no do you not understand, Freeman? Dude, this guy had persistence. Uh, Seriously, like, I I love the picture part. Like, no, you don't want to teach psychiatrists either? Okay, just take a picture of me with this guy in my pickup is I ready? I wonder uh, how many of these doctors and scientists were actually like uh, would be or want to be serial killers who were kind of like H.H. H. Holmes that used like the whole guise of like, oh, it's, you know, for medical scientific purposes so that they can get away with like torturing or killing people without being held responsible. At I all. hadn't even thought of that. That's a really good point. There has to be some level of that or some degree of people being I for mean, sure either killers or being just like complete total sadists. I had not thought of that, really. That's a really good point. Mm. Yeah, just psychopaths in general who just want to have control over people and fuck with them and be like, I don't fucking care. It's not my body. I'm just going to stick an ice pick in their brain. And then say, oh, but I'm doing it for science and for advancements in medicine, so it's necessary. Plus, they're deemed insane anyway already, so... So while um, I realize I only briefly hinted at why lobotomies in general were considered controversial, but I feel like that's kind of stating the obvious, so I'm not going to go into that, you know, the whole holes and heads and just rooting around in there. Yeah, not good. While some patients claimed to experience relief from manic depressive episodes or various other ailments, the majority of patients essentially became zombified, if not worse, and Walter Freeman couldn't outrun the negative press, at least not forever. The lobotomy of Rosemary Kennedy, the sister of President John F. Kennedy, is widely considered one of Freeman's most prominent failures. Uh, Quick background, Rosemary was born in 1918 with a mental deficiency caused at birth. Her mother went into labor, but the obstetrician was running late. Sharon, I'm sure you learned this trick in nursing school, but the attending nurse, not wanting to deliver the baby without a doctor present fucking reached into the birth canal and held poor baby Rosemary in place. For real. And, well, the lack of oxygen caused lasting damage to her brain, resulting in her mental deficiency. I mean, I don't know what nurses did back in 1918, but now nurses would be delivering that baby on their own, with or without a doctor. Damn straight. I mean, freaking cab drivers deliver babies. Like, come on. That's insane. I know. It's totally insane. In 1940, Rosemary was placed in a convent, but it didn't stick as the nuns reported that she'd sneak out, go to bars, and go home with men. My word. My clutch my pearls. She goes home with men. Uh, Her father, Joe Kennedy, was at that time preparing his sons for political careers and needed to cure Rosemary of her mental deficiency. Enter Dr. Walter Freeman. According to an article from allthatsinteresting.com, Rosemary would later claim that she had no idea she was getting a lobotomy until afterwards, as no one in her family thought to ask if she had any thoughts of her own. 
So, in 1941, at age 23, Rosemary Kennedy had a lobotomy. It was the old two holes in the head and stir version, but it's rumored that Freeman would often break out the old ice pick and root around through the eye sockets for old time's sake, but we don't know for sure if he did that with Rosemary, but folks have theorized over the years. Apparently, Rosemary was fucking awake the entire time, reciting poems and talking to the doctors. It's said that they knew the procedure was over when she stopped talking. Oh. I know. Immediately, the Kennedys realized their mistake, to put it lightly. Too fucking late. Right? After <laughs> I've been holding my rage. <laughs> After the procedure, Rosemary lost her ability to walk or talk. I wonder why. Stick rooting around in your brain. The poor girl spent 20 years institutionalized, unable to speak, walk, or even fucking see her family. Only after her father suffered a major stroke did her mother, whose name was Rose also, visit her daughter. Panicked and confused and fucking angry, Rosemary actually attacked her mother, unable to express her feelings of rage otherwise. Good. Right? If there's any good to come out of Rosemary's ordeal, it was the Kennedys' realization of what they had done by abandoning their daughter. Eventually, they themselves became champions for the mentally disabled. Loss of motor function, seizures, and a complete disassociation with society and the world were common symptoms of lobotomies. So thank God we don't still practice that shit today. But the procedure is referenced throughout the 50s and 60s pop culture, most memorably in literature, in Sylvia Plath's book The Bell Jar, and in film with Jack Nicholson's infamous performance in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Uh, what's super frightening to me is thinking about the number of people who are essentially tortured against their will, mental patients deemed, quote, insane, but by like 1950 standards. So that could literally mean anything. Again, there are stories and cases all over the internet. If you're looking to find out more, the gruesomeness is out there for you. In closing, though, I should mention that there certainly were patients who underwent lobotomies voluntarily. Why the fuck would anyone ever agree to do that, you might ask? Well, sadly, not only was mental illness clearly misunderstood due to the lack of medical advances and the technology we have today, but for patients with severe symptoms like manic depressives, someone suffering from delusions, or even panic disorder, Xanax, Prozac, none of that was around in, at that time. So some patients even admitted that they underwent a lobotomy as it was, quote, better than the alternative, which would be getting locked up in an institution, tossed into a straitjacket and forgotten. Mental health treatments were experiments, basically. These doctors were literally just guessing. So you had a choice. Get worse and tossed into an institution to rot for the rest of your life or take a fucking chance on a procedure that could cause damage, but also could maybe help cure your symptoms. Knowing how institutions were back in the 30s and 40s, if I had a moderate to severe mental illness, I can't say that I wouldn't choose to roll the dice myself. I don't know. What do you guys think? No way. <laughs> no fucking way. And I never knew that about the Kennedys. My God, the skeletons in that family's closet is like insane. Well, my favorite part is not my favorite part. I shouldn't put it that way. But the fact she was, oh, she's running around going home with men 
And yet we all know the rumors about their sons. So whatever. Anyway. Well, if you think uh, Freeman was bad, I'm going to be talking about Henry Cotton and his surgical excisions and tooth extractions to help mental illness. Mm. Hmm. So American psychiatrist Henry Cotton had an interesting insanity theory. He was convinced that by removing the infected teeth of mental patients, he could cure them of their insanity. The doctor who was the protege of the great psychiatrist Adolf Meyer of John Hopkins was convinced that insanity resulted from untreated infections in the body. During his 26-year reign at the Trenton Psychiatric Hospital, uh, I'm going to (laughs) editorialize here and say reign of terror. I almost spit my coffee all over the mic. (laughs) Um, Dr. Henry Cotton performed over 645 twisted operations in which he tried to, quote, save the mentally ill. Immediately after taking over Trenton Psychiatric Hospital, Cotton began removing the infected teeth of his patients. But to his surprise, this did not always cure them of their madness, although it did stop them from speaking clearly and eating properly. And that is not a joke. That is actually written (laughs) in the article. Um, I mean, I guess that's one way to... If they can't tell you that I mean, what their mental ailments are, you don't have to worry about what it. What do you think is going to happen when you Ugh. remove the teeth, all the teeth of someone? Undeterred by this, Cotton concluded that the reason his surgeries were not always successful was that the infection had spread too far. In this case, it was necessary to remove other infected body parts, including tonsils, stomachs, gallbladders, testicles, ovaries, and colons. I mean, who needs those? Those are just spare parts, right? I mean, my uterus regularly travels up to my teeth, so I could see that that line of thinking, but yeah. Like your colon, your gallbladder, you need that shit. Or like your stomach? <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Oh, yeah, stomach, quite, quite handy <laughs> for many, many functions. Cotton reported that he managed to cure 85% of his patients. Um... I'm guessing that what he probably failed to say was that 90% of his patients died. And then out of the 10% that actually lived, 85% of those were cured. Yeah, I want to see I want to see the real numbers here. Well, and then, of course, his definition of cure is... This is true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess if you paralyze them and they can't, like, move or talk, their mental illness is cured, right? <laughs> Naturally, his colleagues were impressed and eager to embrace his methods. Um, Well, they believed the numbers. I don't know why they were impressed by this. Fucking science back then. Uh, Patients of mentally unstable children were anxious to get a slot in Cotton's tight schedule. And if that was not possible, they insisted that their own doctors replicate Cotton's surgeries. Cotton was now a famous man, acknowledged both in America and Europe for his radical and supposedly successful treatment of insanity. However, as Henry Cotton continued to perform his bizarre surgeries, his patient's death rate was rising. At one point, one in three patients died after undergoing Cotton's treatment. At a mortality rate of 30%, cut, I'm sure it's probably actually higher than that. Um, 30% by his numbers. Yeah. (laughs) Cotton recognized the risk, but claimed that most of the patients that died were already in poor physical condition because why wouldn't you operate on someone who's already in poor physical condition? (laughs) Thankfully, not everyone had fallen under Cotton's spell. 
Some psychiatrists were skeptical of Cotton's surgeries. In addition, allegations surfaced that he was mistreating his patients. What? It was only in 1924 that a proper investigation into Cotton's methods was initiated by Dr. Phyllis Greenacre. At the same time that Greenacre was carrying out her investigation, a New Jersey State Senate committee also developed an interest in the Trenton Asylum. It turned out that Cotton was not as popular as he once was. What followed was a parade of disgruntled employees, malicious ex-patients, and their families testifying in damning detail about brutality, forced and bot surgery, debility, and death. During the investigations, Cotton suddenly went conveniently mad. <laughs> However, after time, Greenacre's damning report was ignored and buried while the New Jersey State Senate lost all interest in the asylum, leading to Cotton miraculously recovering. Apparently, his madness was caused by a few infected teeth. <laughs> Once he removed them, he felt much better. So <laughs> he also removed his wife's teeth and his children's teeth. Damn. Immediately, Cotton's mad treatments were back in demand. Not only did Cotton continue his surgical procedures in Trenton and traveled around the U.S. and Europe giving lectures, but he also opened up a private clinic where he welcomed wealthy patients desperate to have their loved ones cured of madness. In the 1930s, Cotton had retired and became medical director emeritus. However, that did not stop him from concocting a new idea. His new theory had become even more radical, if you can believe that. He thought it was a good idea to carry out colectomies on children to prevent insanity and to stop them from engaging in bad habits, such as masturbation. Do not know how taking out a child's colon would stop them from masturbating, I don't even understand like how he would connect the dots to get to that right. yeah. point. You might as well just say, I'm going to take out your ears. Off your ears. Yeah, off, whatever. I In mean, you can live without ears. It's much harder to exist without a colon, especially in those days. But like, what the fuck? Where did he come up with that theory? He also took to criticizing dentists, finding it <laughs> strange that they tried to fix teeth instead of simply pulling them out. Oh my God. I know this guy, this, here you go. Here's a great example of someone that would have just been a serial killer had he not went into medicine. I think so. Uh, at the same time, Cotton was still continuing his original controversial surgeries at Trenton and his procedures were still coming under fire in the early 1930s. An investigation was initiated by the hospital's board and was carried out by the director of the New Jersey Department of Institutions and Agencies. When the record of the 645 patients who had undergone cotton surgeries were examined and compared to 407 patients who had not undergone those surgeries, it was found that the recovery rate was actually higher among those patients who had not been treated by cotton. You don't say. <laughs> Naturally, Henry Cotton and his supporters fought fiercely against the allegations that their surgical procedures were harmful. However, to the shock of all, in the middle of his latest fight, Cotton died of a heart attack in 1933. Wah, wah. <laughs> Mental patients at Trenton could finally breathe more easily. 
All in all, Henry Cotton and his assistants pulled more than 11,000 teeth and performed 645 major surgeries. Cotton killed hundreds of people and maimed many others. Yet the Times obituary declared that, quote, all must lament the loss of this great pioneer whose humanitarian influence was and will continue to be of such monumental proportions. Then the article ended with, P.S., listen up, grave robbers, don't even bother, he has no teeth. I just, like... That's fucked up. This is so fucked up. Um, yeah, I, I seriously think he was just a serial killer who who preyed on innocent patients and also the fact that he still had supporters... I like that he made fun of dent or he criticized dentists for the work that they do. All right. That that's going to wrap up our uh, surgical treatments on mental illness. Uh, Mindy, do you want to take us back to uh, medications? First, I'm going to touch on uh, metrazole therapy. Originally, pentylinetrazole, sometimes referred to as metrazole, which I'll probably say mostly because it's easier to say, is a stimulant drug formerly used as a circulatory and respiratory stimulant. In 1934, it was discovered that high doses of the drug caused convulsions, which opened the door to what was called convulsive therapy. While horrifying in sound, convulsive therapy was actually somewhat effective in treating severe depression. I'm going to make that clear, severe. Unfortunately, the side effects, such as uncontrollable seizures, for one, outweighed the benefits of the treatment, often leading to vertebral and spinal compression fractures in patients. The use of the drug for psychiatric treatments was quickly replaced by electroconvulsive or electroshock therapy, a.k.a. ECT, in 1939. So I'm not going to go too much into the details of what ECT is, but the basics are that it's a procedure that electrically induces seizures in the brain to treat severe mental health disorders. Wikipedia says usually 70 to 120 volts are applied externally to the patient's head and informed consent is required for this treatment. Also, all the horrible things you thought you knew about electroshock, yeah, those were kind of wrong because electroshock fucking works for those who actually need it, that is. So let me explain. From an article posted by The Scientific American, I'm actually going to read the opening of this and then we can discuss Hopefully I'm going to be able to do this without crying. (laughs) Um, The following essay is reprinted with permission from The Conversation, an online publication covering the latest research on mental health stuff. I'll put that in parentheses. Carrie Fisher's ashes are in an urn designed to look like a Prozac pill. It's fitting that in death, she continues to be both brash and wryly funny about treatment for depression. The public grief over Carrie Fisher's death was not only for an actress who played one of the most iconic roles in film history. It was also for one who spoke with wit and courage about her struggle with mental illness. In a way, the fearless General Leia Organa on screen was not much of an act. Sorry, I don't know why this really gets to me, but it does. (laughs) Fisher's bravery, though, was not just in fighting the stigma of her illness, but also in declaring in her memoir, Shockaholic, her voluntary use of a stigmatized treatment. 
electroconvulsive therapy, ECT, often known as shock treatment. So yeah, we love you, Carrie Fisher. <laughs> Clearly, I still do. Um, I remember HBO had a bunch of her specials on at one point, and I actually think it might have been a different special, maybe not, but I heard her her talk about her experiences with electroshock and remember being a bit taken aback, but understood how extreme her issues had been throughout her life. So it really didn't seem far-fetched to me that she'd had electroshock at one point in her life, but fucking Carrie Fisher having a laugh and shocking, pun intended, her audience uh, by saying how much she loves getting electroshock. I think she said it was essentially like a reboot for your brain. Now, there are side effects, sure, but it's not like what we've seen in the movies. Certainly, it's not anymore. But it hasn't been for a while, and I, for one, had no idea. So again, from the Scientific American, many critics have portrayed ECT as a form of medical abuse, and depictions in film and television are usually scary. Like in Room for a Dream, that scene, like is so disturbing. I think that was actually listed somewhere I saw as an example. Ugh, it's brutal. Yet, many psychiatrists, and more importantly, the patients, consider it to be a safe and effective treatment for severe depression and bipolar disorder. Few medical treatments have had such disparate images, which I think is true, but again, this is amazing to me. Basically, the idea is to stimulate the brain with the voltage amount, and that's based on each patient's individual seizure threshold. So it's not like they just shock you; like they do, like work with you. And um, while some drugs, such as like lithium or benzodiazepines, can cause a negative reaction with the shock therapy, patients that are on those meds are given treatments to counteract or offset any interfering reactions prior to getting electroshock. ECT gained popularity in the 1940s, uh, whereas lobotomies would reduce a patient to a more manageable, submissive state. ECT helped to improve mood in those with severe depression. A survey of psychiatric practice in the late 1980s found that an estimated 100,000 people received ECT annually, with wide variation between metropolitan statistical areas. The treatment is used worldwide, but regulated in the U.S. at the state level, which means that we don't, unfortunately, have a lot of accurate information or data on the effectiveness of treatment, as different states have different mandates. Again, states work together. Come on, U.S. One thing is certain, and I feel like I can't stress this enough, this procedure does require patients' consent. Thanks to films like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, Electroshock has received a bad rap throughout the years. Often, simply the mention of ECT as a possible treatment option was actually used as a threat. So like, you know, the doctor would be like, if you don't get better or get your shit together, we're going to strap you down and, and zap you. Uh, to be fair, ECT in the 50s wasn't what it is today. Yes, if you zap your brain with an electric current, your body reacts. Folks would, like with the metrazole treatment, seize up causing muscle and even spinal damage, depending on the intensity. Fortunately, today patients are administered light pre-treatment meds to offset some such things like a twilight-type drug that, you know, you, you're not awake during the treatment these days, plus a light muscle relaxer to prevent all of the seizing. 
1999 report by the U.S. Surgeon General states that, quote, the fears that ECT causes gross structural brain pathology have not been supported by decades of methodologically sound research in both humans and animals. That's not to say that it's like getting a massage or a mani-pedi. Part of why ECT seems so scary is because it's so direct acting. Putting electrodes on your head to directly interact with your brain, it's got to have some consequences, right? It does, sadly, specifically memory loss. Again, from Scientific American, um, quote, serious and permanent memory loss is everywhere in patient memoirs, not least in those patients who have written positive accounts of ECT's therapeutic effects. In her book, Shockaholic, Fisher was emphatic about the power of ECT to reverse stubborn depression, but added, quote, the truly negative thing about ECT is that it's incredibly hungry and the only thing it has a taste for is memory, unquote. So I'm not going to wrap up this section. I kind of want to dig in a bit more on this. I've always been horrified at the idea of electroshock. And aside from Carrie Fisher, I'd frankly never heard anyone speak positively about it and bought hook, line, and sinker the depictions we see on TV and in the movies. I actually encourage folks to read an article from McLean Hospital on the topic, and we'll post it in the show notes, but it's called Why ECT is Becoming a Preferred Depression Treatment. It features patient testimonials that I, and I thought it was just worth a read because now I want to learn tons more. Just nice to hear something that I'm sure has caught, has been the cause of nightmares for countless folks suffering from mental illness over the years was actually just, for the most part, at least an urban legend. Not saying I'm becoming an ECT advocate or jumping on that train myself, but turns out it's been helping people improve their quality of life since like the 40s and 50s. Who knew? I certainly didn't. So I'm going to try and read more, but God damn you, Jack Nicholson. I actually met a guy about 15 years ago who was getting this treatment. Really? And I had completely thought that they didn't do it anymore. And and he was like, no, I, I still get it because it helps me. So I thought that was pretty interesting. That is cool. I've never met anybody. But yeah, like, I guess even back in the, the 50s, it wasn't what they made it out to look like. I saw Cuckoo's Nest so long ago. I don't actually remember it being used in that, but I'll never forget Reckon for a Dream because I've seen the movie so many times. And every time I'm like that poor woman, like they just completely... Uh, ignored her actual problems and were like, this is what we're going to do. Like, and I think they did have her sign something, but she had no idea what she was signing. You know, she was so out of her mind because she was on so many drugs. And yeah, I thought it was this horrible thing too, but thank you for uh, enlightening us on the, uh, the truth of electroshock therapy. I, didn't know that either. So. Yeah. And I want to learn more, right? Because I thought that was really interesting. But And I just find it so odd that, yeah, it's like the one thing that's been like really, I guess, misrepresented, uh, I guess, in media. But whatever sells movie tickets, I guess, right? And, I, you know, I'm sure it has been misused, to be fair. Oh, for, I mean, in the 50s or 40s or whatever, like they didn't have the drugs they have today. So, yeah, people would have full-on seizures, which would cause... I mean, it's not without risks, but... yeah. They've taken that into account and improved and advanced. So, but I just remember watching that Carrie Fisher special and her being like, 
oh my God, I pop in. And it's like, I come out refreshed, you know, like in her crazy way, like how silly she is. But she was talking about it. And I was like, are you effing kidding? Like you pop in like for our massage? Yeah, apparently that is kind of like what happens. I have to watch that. All right. So we're going to wrap this up with talking about a different type of shock therapy. We're going to be talking about insulin shock therapy. So a decade after the discovery of insulin in 1922, a young Polish neurophysiologist and neuropsychiatrist named Manfred J. Sakel accidentally discovered that by causing convulsions with an overdose of insulin, that the treatment was effective for patients afflicted with psychosis, particularly schizophrenia. In 1930, he began to perfect what was to become the Sakel's technique for treating schizophrenics. According to his findings, more than 70% of his patients improved after insulin shock therapy. So it sounds kind of similar to ECT and the fact that, you know, the the seizures or whatever it kind of rewire your brain in some way. Yeah. Uh, but this, this is definitely not as therapeutic as ECT, which I will get into in a second here. The therapy itself took place over a number of weeks or months with patients receiving daily insulin injections that induced a coma-like state persisting for an hour or so before it was reversed by supervising hospital staff with an injection of glucose. The insulin dosage was increased every day, inducing increasingly deeper states of unconsciousness until doctors decided the patient was at maximum benefit at which point they would be tapered off the insulin. This process was repeated again and again until the patient had experienced anywhere from 30 to 50 of these comas. The doctors from the Bronx VA reported that patients waking from an insulin-induced coma, quote, display deep confidence in the staff. They frequently express a feeling of being reborn, end quote. Common side effects, however, included obesity, permanent brain damage, and sometimes death. Modern research on the era says that the fatality rate was around 1%. Insulin coma therapy went out of vogue with the introduction of antipsychotics in the 1960s. By that time, it had also been largely discredited and was on its way to being relegated to an embarrassing blip in the history of psychiatry. So yeah, thank God that went away. That's fucked up. And I'm sure that that feeling of deep self-confidence in the staff that people experienced when they woke up was, oh, thank you for waking me up from my fucking coma. And I'm sure it was fleeting. I'm sure within like <laughs> minutes to hours, people were having like the opposite effect oh and having God. memory loss because of permanent brain damage and other ill effects. I hate so. to say this, but I kind of feel like I can see where if you're having a mental illness, you might think, well, maybe if we drill a hole in the head, man. but like that makes more sense to me than this. Just because it's like, what, whatever. But <laughs> as long as that makes more sense to you, <laughs> I can't say I, I agree. I'm going to stop ranting, but anyway. All right. So uh, let's just discuss present day mental health treatments around the world today. And let's see how far we've actually come. All right. Uh, even though we have made progress over many, many thousands of years regarding treatments for people with mental illness, the situation today is far from great. According to the World Horror... <laughs> the World Horror Organization. What podcast are we on? 
According to the World Health Organization, up to 50% of people suffering from mental disorders in Europe and North America, and up to 85% of people in developing countries do not receive treatment of any kind. The reason for this massive gap between suffering and treatment is because thousands of people with mental health issues are deprived of their human rights. In both health facilities and communities, individuals with mental illness are often marginalized and stigmatized. For example, in India alone, there are only 43 government mental health hospitals to provide service for the estimated more than 70 million people living with psychosocial disabilities in that country. For every 1 million people, there are only three psychiatrists, with psychologists even more scarce. Only 25% of hospitals, clinics, and mental health professionals are in rural areas where 70% of the population lives. Additionally, mental illness is highly stigmatized, especially among women. They often find themselves with no legal rights, receiving involuntary treatment, and incorrect diagnoses. And in West Africa, where mental health services are nearly non-existent, interventions made up of religious retreats known as prayer camps are set up as makeshift psychiatric wards to treat individuals where mentally ill patients are literally shackled to trees and forests. And in the U.S., nearly one in every five adults lives with a mental illness. But compared to most other high-income countries, the U.S. has a smaller total supply of mental health workers with 105 professionals per 100,000 people. That's crazy. According to the American Psychiatric Association, quote, racial slash ethnic Gender and sexual minorities often suffer from poor mental health outcomes due to multiple factors, including inaccessibility of high-quality mental health care facilities, cultural stigma surrounding mental health care, discrimination, and overall lack of awareness about mental health. So what can we do to help? We can continue to shine a light on this issue that is often ignored, Poor mental health is both a cause and a consequence of poverty, compromised education, gender inequality, ill health, and violence. It impedes an individual's capacity to work productively, realize their potential, make a contribution to their community, and live a fulfilling life, which is something that we should all be able to do. Absolutely. It's crucial that the mental health community recognizes the complexity behind various mental illnesses, whether it's a specific phobia, anxiety disorder, schizophrenia, bipolar disease, or PTSD, each deserve specialized care and our full attention. Um, Regarding modern psychology and psychiatry, especially specifically in the US, um, that's, that's all I can speak to personally, I I think the most important piece of advice that I can give to anyone is to either self-advocate or to have somebody you trust who understands your wishes and best interests with you to speak on your behalf. It is way too easy for some doctors to take advantage if they want to. Um, I'm really lucky that even at my worst, I was still a stubborn ass bitch who knew that something wasn't right and wasn't afraid to speak up and say, hey, this isn't working. But not everyone is as lucky or persistent as I was. Um, And had I existed in the 1930s, I probably wouldn't have stood a chance. So 
yay for timing, I guess. So yikes. We just want to thank you all for listening to this episode. Obviously, we made a ton of jokes along the way, but this is a very serious topic that we take seriously. Um, And hopefully, you know, with the new administration, there's new changes in healthcare, uh, especially regarding the way mental illness is treated in this country. Yeah, I have a relative who is a veteran who just finally, finally this year got access to go see someone to talk to, to see a therapist, because the way it works in the VA, at least the hospital that she was going to, there was like a rotating therapist that would come in every once in a while. And it was kind of like a lotto for who got to actually talk to a therapist. And that is not okay, especially for people who are veterans and dealing with PTSD. Um, You know, just people need to be treated better in this country. Um, and, and mental illness needs to be taken more seriously and it is much more prevalent than people think. It, there's nothing abnormal about it. And, and hopefully everything about mental illness starts to become destigmatized. Yeah. And I don't, I don't really know about ACA insurance, but I do know that if you're someone who is on your works insurance, I know at my job, they have been increasing coverage for mental health facilities and even offering with everything happening in the world today, we have like an intranet with announcements and there was a thing on there that's like nervous, stressed, talk to one of our specialists. So if you are someone who's out there suffering or or think that you might have some sort of issue, just know that like people are building in, you know, employers even are building in uh, processes and procedures into their their healthcare plans to help cover mental illness now more than I feel like they ever did before. Because it used to be that you get like five visits to see a therapist a year. And it's like, great, that's gonna help, you know, yeah, but that's changing fairly rapidly. So that's just something to keep in mind throwing it out there. It's good. And we had like 40 references for this episode. Um, so I'm not going to go through all of them, but we will post them in the episode description. Um, if you want to check those out, but as I said, thank you for listening to us. As always, you can write us at whorestalkwhore at gmail.com with anything you want to share with us. Tell us uh, what movies you're looking forward to this year. Uh, share ghost stories with us. Uh, any true crime stories that you have. Creepy stories. UFO stories. Um, whatever we can read on our show. Please also subscribe to us if you haven't already. Rate and review us. It really does help us get more exposure. If you are able to, please join our Patreon if you want to have early access to episodes, see exclusive posts, and maybe get some cool shit along the way. Please, right now especially, everybody, be kind to each other. Please, please, please be safe, everyone. And as always, thanks thanks for getting creepy with us. Sharon, you want a beer? Uh, Oh my god.